Hello and welcome to this special episode of the Soda Media Podcast, recapping all of the industry-leading insight and research presented at the large-scale Soda Digital Summit this week. Uh, joining me for this special edition of the podcast are Soda Media's own Jose Rojo, Joe Wilkinson and Molly Lemprier. How are we all this morning? Yeah, very well, thank you. Hello, everyone. Excellent, excellent. Um, so, as with all of our um, digital summits that, that, that we've launched during this this period of lockdown this summer uh, we have a number of concurrent themes running throughout um for this week in, in large scale we, we've looked particularly at uh bifacial technologies and their potential um but also at the, the development management and operation of large-scale solar assets so something which is right in our wheelhouse as um as you all already know um but we wouldn't be doing these without um, the the underlying um, impact of of COVID. So um, that's kind of I think the best place to start would be to to really tackle that elephant in the room. Um, I don't know what everyone else's thoughts are. I'm um, having listened to some of the sessions this week, but what kind of an impact have we heard that this is having on developers and it, it, pretty much indeed the whole broad solar sector in general? As I know from my own conversations, it's uh, people have been a bit mixed. Yeah, sure. I mean, happy to report uh, to get started from my Iberian uh, patch. I mean, there's obviously been lots of attention on Spanish solar, more specifically, the extent of the disruption after the fantastic year they had in 2019. And I guess the overall theme for me was that people have pretty much adapted, actually. Uh, there were lots of talk um, in the sessions of creativity around plant construction, the practicalities each firm had followed to get workers on site, uh, shifts, etc. And uh, we can talk about financing more in depth uh, later, but the gist of it was actually, and you know, this has been a surprise for many firms, financing has actually not been that much of an issue. You know, there's obviously the, the, the crash of power prices, it's changing things, banks are restricting the debt they are ready to give, PPAs are just a whole nother game, but financing, yeah, is still forthcoming. I think Banco Sabadell was quite clear that the appetite uh, for solar is going nowhere. So yeah, and just, I don't know, I guess just to, you, you start putting together, you know, all these things, supply chain issues are fading into the background, construction is adapting to social distancing, financing is still a possibility, and um, and the strong national targets, especially here in Europe, you know, driving demand uh, in the long run. And the picture you get, at least in Iberia, is I think the industry is uh, reasonably confident it can turn the page, it is already turning the page from COVID. Mm-hmm. I think yes, um, it's really it's really interesting because um, obviously we've looked at this for the for the next issue of, of PV10 Power Twenty Three, which which is coming out towards the end of May. But certainly from the developers that, that I spoke to for that feature, they have adapted really really quite quickly, uh, putting into mm-hmm. place um, social distancing measures, um, tinkering with the teams that work on the sites. And now, whereas you might have had quite significant um, construction teams to get a site over the line pretty quickly, these are now working to teams of no more than four. Um, obviously, most of the work, if not all of it, is outside, which helps. Um, mm. And then they've kind of delayed any um, work which requires close. So if people are working under under close quarters, that kind of stuff has all been delayed for the time being, which is which mm. is interesting. Um, it'll be interesting to see how far that how that, how far that goes and what kind of an impact it has on project timelines and and, and the work of development. Um, but also really, really interesting to hear that the finance community is still very much on board with with Soda. I know um, kind of outside of the conference this week, we've had the um, International Energy 
um, Association look at um, the broader impact of COVID, specifically on solar. Mm. Um, and they're saying that it, there will definitely be some kind of impact. Um, it might be, I think their their terminology was it's it's hurting, not halting. So mm. it's having a little bit of an impact, but it's not causing things to end outright. They did flag a particular or a, a possible um, drag on, on financing. So it's really interesting for us to have those financiers on site this week mm. um, saying that, that that might not be the case. I've heard um, a few financiers and a few financial advisors kind of talk about solar as a safe haven. So if you look at the larger kind of um, infrastructure finance world, you know, no one's going to be investing in airports, shopping centres. You know, it's a very different world that we live in now than we went into at the beginning of March. But, you know, people still need access to power. You know, most governments, um, you know, are quite open to, to renewables and, you know, that's not going to change. Um, so I, I've kind of heard a few kind of people talking about solar as something that you know could attract kind of more risk averse money um, than it has done previously. I think it's a really interesting point because obviously power is is a, a massive constant of of the economy, mm-hmm. regardless of of what's happening. Like obviously, and we'll come on to this um, in a few discussions later. But um, whilst power demand is has fallen. Um, as a result of COVID, obviously, the impact on industry and the economy in general is, is causing that kind yeah. of uh, drag on, on power demand um, and even power consumption patterns. So things are definitely changing, but there is still a demand for power there much more, much more than there is transport or um, retail or anything like that. So it's really interesting to hear that. So they're kind of emerging from that status as perhaps a, a more a, a riskier investment to becoming one of those safe havens, like you say. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I, I, I don't know what I don't know what was said um, throughout the conference in, in general. I, I, I listened to most of it, but not, not all. But um, has there been any kind of impact or, or input from people about um, employment or anything like that? Because I know that's that's going to be a subject on, on people's lips. No, I mean we did some polls. Um, so one of the polls that we we ran through the event. Uh, was asking people what impact COVID had had on their business and it kind of ranged from um, you know none at all to um, you know a lot and, and furloughed staff um, and most people that responded were in the, the the kind of first three pots which was none at all or a slight impact where you know deals have been slightly delayed mm-hmm. um, no one ticked uh, projects have been cancelled um, and then I probably about 20% of people had said you know some staff have been furloughed so there obviously is an impact but it doesn't seem that you know it's at that kind of catastrophic stage at, at the moment mm. i think actually an interesting takeaway for me uh, on that front is that you know we spent the past few weeks i mean months really documenting the impacts for individual firms what they mm. each communicated or but actually behind the scenes obviously due diligence is more important than ever it's not so mm. much your own financial health or your own company yeah your own health as a company but actually that of the people you rely on your customers yeah. your contractors mm-hmm. and actually i remember i think it was ebox uh, energy who are developing solar in Spain, and they said their worry now is actually EPC contractors. Uh, You Mm -hmm. know, they look at these firms, they see the liquidity problems in there, and the question is, how much do you actually know of what's going on in there, really? You know, how much are they actually telling you? Because when Mm -hmm. you go and talk to your lenders, they will want to find out. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, for me, that was interesting. Good stuff, good stuff. Um, I think that's pretty much enough of COVID. I know people have had (laughs) that thrust down their throats for the last kind of 
three months, if not longer, for certainly for some of our some of our audience. Um, but it's fair to say that in, in the grand scale of or the grand theme of large scale deployment, this isn't by by any stretch of the imagination the only barrier um, that people are having to to hurdle or, or or come across. Um, what what what's some of the other hurdles that, that have been mentioned this week? You like to talk about power prices. We we can talk about power prices. They're definitely there. They are a a massive massive part of this. I mean, um, yeah, sure, go ahead. I was going to say, I think one of one of the things that was quite interesting uh, was the conversation we had on the Iberian panel about auctions and power prices. Mm. Um, and um, I can't remember which speaker made the point, but there is a concern that actually, you know, if if more countries move to auction um, this year and next year, that it actually depressed power prices. Um, even more and I think that was quite an interesting thing that I would have wanted to pull out more if if I'd included it in the agenda beforehand um to be interesting to see how that plays out yeah I mean the ball is in you know in in Spain's court I I guess we saw the new climate and energy plan this week Mm -hmm. and it does confirm that as we knew there's going to be auctions going forward will it be this year as we know UNEF the National PV Association is asking well, that is not clear as of uh, as of yet, but yeah, I think I, I don't think anyone uh, you know in Spain is blinded to the risks here. The the specific case of Portugal, I think, has been a big feature of our of our face to face events, and and it was the case again this week. You know, how can you actually how can you actually make financial sense of a yeah fourteen euros per megawatt hour? And more importantly as well, are you distorting the market? Are you sending mm. the wrong price signals? I think it was Banco Sabadell who read that. That is the main concern with auctions. People seem to think they are yeah, they are useful to get things back on track initially. But um, if they are not well designed, it could actually backfire in the long run. I think it was a point. That was something that we sort of saw in the UK market as well um, mm. with the contracts for difference auctions coming back. Chris Hewitt, who um, is head of the Soda Trade Association, who was talking on Wednesday, um, was talking about how, as we see more and more periods of negative pricing, the contracts for difference auction is probably going to have to be changed in order to take in that into account and to make sure that Soda really gets out from it. I think we, we've, we've, this is something which we've seen across Europe for, um, or it, real increasing regularity now. I know the issue with negative pricing perhaps first first came to light um, in Germany um, obviously mm. one of the four forerunners of um, the energy transition with their hugely successful energy vendor um, scheme but they've, they've seen an increasing amount of negative pricing as more of these zero marginal cost renewables come onto the grid the UK has now started to realize that as well um, and it's, it's made for some really interesting discussions around the future of the energy market in general, really. You have these some quite significant periods where the prices tip into the negative and you're actually paying consumers to take power from the grid, which can be seen as a good thing. Obviously, if you if you own a, whether that's a, a domestic or a, indeed a commercial industrial or a large-scale battery, then you're obviously on, on to a key um, advantage there um, but it doesn't mean it doesn't make for particularly good reading for people who are trying to build a business case around um, deploying large-scale renewables in particular there is this um, I'm not sure I'm not sure how well known it is but um, if, if you are if you're generating 
um, and you're reaping a subsidy from 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 your generation. So obviously, a lot of these uh, renewables are um, are going to derive subsidies from from some scheme or or whatever. If the if the power price dips into the negative for longer than six hours, then that that subsidy is 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 withdrawn due to the face. It's a EU policy, which means it has to be withdrawn because that power isn't then deemed to be um, worthwhile. Now, the UK wants to make changes to the to the CFD scheme, where if you are generating for any period of time at a negative price, that renders your subsidy um, or your your capacity payment. Um, null and void so that will be really interesting to see how that is taken into the modeling for future projects because it could be pretty significant um so yeah power prices um are a pretty significant barrier coming into it i know that we've also seen reports from various investors that have obviously their future power prices play a huge part of that um that business case and you're you're, we're seeing reports of power price compression by something to the tune of 40 percent over the next year or two mm. um and then it taking until 2025 for them to recover properly so mm. again it's that kind of if if you are building a business case partic- particularly around the merchant uh, merchant power model mm. then how how devastating is that going to be on your business case or or does it just take into a, or does it just require a bit more clever clever modeling or or whether that's mm. um stacking different revenue cases on as well mm, i mean and you know, with regards to ppas you know and specifically in iberia you've had, you have this whole new entire new ecosystem of merchant players ppa solar players all relying on that power price curve and you know what what, what are they doing now when prices we've seen crash to 20 euros per megawatt hour or even lower i think it was I think it was, uh, yeah, Mikkel Quinn from Our New Energy. He sort mm-hmm. of spelled it all out, how difficult things are going to be for solar PPAs, at least in the short term. I think he mentioned current PPA prices are 15% lower than you would need just to meet construction costs. So, you know, he said, yeah, of course, we're all still in- interested. Banks, investors, developers, it's really good. The interest is still there. But if the reality of the figures, you know, is what it is, then what do you do? I think... Yeah, the answer seemed to be, I, th- I think I found it quite interesting how, look, why prices, while prices recover, you have to keep pushing those PPA negotiations with off-takers. Uh, corporate PPAs in particular, they take so long to complete anyway and uh, try and focus with people you already know. I think this was a, mm. a tip for developers because banks and off-takers, they're not feeling very adventurous. I think that was the word right now. But yeah, but I think there was an admission probably that whatever you do, the PPA interaction is just, yeah, going to toughen up, I think. Um, you know, of takers, there will be, you know, there will be a squeeze on their side on price and duration. And, um, and yeah, and just remember, I think I think it was a speaker on the Iberian panel again. Remember your PPA counterparties, they have a boss to report to, mm. they have their own challenges, and they too are adjusting to this new era and uh, to the power price curve. So yeah, so give it time, be patient, I guess that was the... <laughs> I know I know that that came up on, on the UK panel as well that, that Molly was talking about earlier. Um, Chris Hewitt was saying how, um, certainly from their members in the UK, the the gist of it is, or at least anecdotally, um, PPA or the, the corporate off-takers for these aren't necessarily walking away from the market. They're just mm. signing contracts at the moment for obvious reasons. So mm. it, 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 I think it is going to be that case of just being, I think, like you say, Jose, just being a bit more 
a bit a bit more patient and continue to persevere with a market that that has real potential but um might suffer in the short term um with everything else um i know this wouldn't be a large-scale solar conference without some kind of talk around grid um Mm -hmm. is is that challenge still still being posed or is it or is it starting to ease a little a little bit one of the bigger challenges so we ran a poll uh, again asking people what their their main challenges were so it it mentioned stuff such as you know policy grid connection um and um that consistently came up as one of the bigger challenges it's something chris you echoed in the uk focus one as well grid constraints remain one of the biggest challenge is for large-scale solar in the uk but he did also touch on the fact that increasingly solar players are having talks with with National Grid and with um, with other players in the energy sector about whether or not they can help to actually provide some level of flexibility and play into the sort of smarter energy system that we're that we're going for um, in the longer term and how solar can actually be used to benefit the grid as well as just facing that challenge of grid constraints. Yeah, I mean, in the case in the case of Spain, I think everybody already. Uh, so the single grid out as the main issue even before COVID. I think one of the speakers said mm-hmm. he was actually asked to uh, identify the top issue going forward and COVID was nowhere near any of that. For him, it was, I think he mentioned 200 gigawatts of yeah. Uh, yeah renewable projects just waiting for grid connection at this point. So how are you going to manage that? And particularly, you know, with, with government obviously not having as much cash to splash out as, as they otherwise would. How are you going to expand the grid? Yeah, so I think that seems to be that seems to be the the Achilles heel of Iberian Solar for sure. It's it's just a ever present issue. I've, I've been in, in the industry for about five years now, and it's it just hasn't gone away. Um, it will be interesting to see how the mm. grid um, providers and operators do adapt to that. Um, I think that they're going to have to have to. I know we've seen some clever and, uh, and particularly interesting moves from some of the distribution network operators in the UK around uh, a different kind of modeling and different kinds of grid connection agreements as well, some flexible grid connection agreements, which really could um, hold sway there. Um, but yeah, I think like you say, it's, it's going to continue to be um, a particular thorn in solar side um, for some time yet. Um, how about, because I know that this is perhaps a broader issue for the industry, but Something which has definitely come up is the financial health of suppliers and key stakeholders, like perhaps touching on the corporate PPA side of things, like not knowing where um, or the impact it's going to have on counterparties. Um, how about, how is that extending towards a broader industry? Are people particularly concerned about the financial health of some of their suppliers? Well, uh, from what I saw, again, yeah, there is a very, um, in Spain in particular, there's, there are big concerns around EPCs and construction mm-hmm. companies. I think Spain does have a bit of a history. You know, we sort of uh, were famous for our real estate bubble a few, <laughs> a few years ago as well. So actually, yeah, the the state of the sector, I mean, big groups, I think everybody thinks that there's going to be consolidation in the EPC sector right now. So how that's going to impact on people's abilities to deliver suppliers not so much i think uh, when it comes to components as well you know the reliance on china china is yeah getting back to um, uh, getting back on track really and uh, the factories in spain in particular as well were only shut down for 10 days i think it was so there's also that ecosystem of really fragmented i think 
in that sense, yeah. I think on the EPC side, it is. Those, that's where the worries tend to be. Interesting, interesting. I know um, one of one, one topic I, I feel that would be perhaps a bit remiss here, considering it was a, a pretty key um, central theme to the conference this week, is that uh, emergence of, of new technologies and the role that they're playing. Mm. Um, I um, chaired a session with um, Stefan Pavlevsky from DuPont, um, mm. who um, obviously one of the um, summit sponsors this week, um, but he was quite um, buoyant about the, the potential for bifacial panels. Now, obviously, um, bifacial has been um, the darling of the solar industry for some for some time now, but I think now we're starting to really mm. see it deployed on mass and people are starting to get their heads around what it means. Um, mm. I know speaking mm. to, to Stefan, there's a lot more sophistication around the entire um, module itself so we're looking in, so now they're looking into um, the technologies that are surrounding around the back sheet but the, what kind of materials to use there the, there has been a preference for um, double glass or geo glass as it's called which perhaps was the the, the kind of first first uh, foray into kind of mass mass produced um, bifacial panels and, and, and the deployment now we're starting to see a bit more um, a bit more migration towards different polymers which is quite interesting um, we've obviously also had um, Next Tracker on the panel this week, yeah. um, who are the kind of world's largest supplier of trackers. That combination of bifacial plus trackers is something we've seen um, continually creeping um, into into different markets. I know um, a UK developer, GridServe, has developed um, a couple of projects in the UK using bifacial plus trackers now. Mm-hmm. They were first announced um, about eighteen months ago, and they they caused a bit of a, a stir in in the UK. So the market, pretty much, just because no one had had felt the need or, or that those the combination of those two technologies would work as far north as the UK. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know for anybody that knows the UK, Hull and Yorkshire aren't the two first places you choose to deploy a solar farm, um, but um, it, it it does work, and that combination of of bifacial plus trackers has really opened up, um, and it's it's really interesting to see that kind of maturation of the industry from a, from a technological standpoint because you have these kind of two moving parts of the finance side, which we which we've spoken about continually maturing, and the the business models are being um, are increasingly sophisticated in terms of how they deal with power prices and and the, the, that kind of merchant model. But we also have the maturation of the solar side, and when you combine them, the two of them. It's um, it's really quite interesting to see. Mm. Mm. For me, like, something I found quite interesting as well, and more generally more around innovation. I think um, on the panel on the unsubsidized solar, some you know, some some were mentioning that solar had essentially been sitting on innovation for years and years because it felt it actually didn't need to. Uh, you know, tap into innovation at all. Mm-hmm. I think there was a, compa- a comparison being made with car makers as well, having the technology for electric vehicles mm-hmm. and not acting on it. But finally, you know, it's true. We seem to, you know, for the last couple of years, the industry seems to be moving to, towards, you know, all these things, you know, bifacial, split cells, tr- you know, single track, etc. who can be allies <clears throat> at a time <clears throat> when there is a search for yield, I think. And the conclusion was, keep doing that you can rest on your laurels you need innovation more than ever i guess mm. good stuff good stuff um that pretty much wraps up uh, a lot of the discussion this week which is which is really um really interesting to kind of get that oversight of of what 
of what's been discussed. I know that we also had a number of really important panels around specific markets. So, um, Jose, I don't know whether you wanted to kick us off with a look um, specifically at what what's happening in in Liberia, because I know that that's um, you were present on some of those sessions. Sure. <clears throat> yeah, and that is, uh, <clears throat> that is very much close to my heart, of course. I mean, it was really striking, <laughs> as uh, mentioned before, how in the Iberian panel, more specifically, the conversation just moved uh, beyond COVID so, so quickly. I mean, there was that question, you know, and at the end, especially, so what is your top concern going forward? And again, we've touched on this briefly, but yeah, greed, greed and greed, and particularly, yeah, in, uh, in Spain. I think... I think it pays off to look at uh, the case of Spanish solar more recently. You know, the, the country obviously has done really well. Top installer in Europe last year, I think we saw 4.7 gigawatts being added over the year, mm-hmm. which is obviously, yeah, so really good news. And uh, we saw policy, positive policy changes as well, the scrapping of the Santax, etc. I think there was a less rosy side to this sunny picture. And I think, yeah, it's worth exploring to understand the the current issues. And I think with Spain, again, with solar and so much else, there is also the shadow of a bubble. Like it's always, mm-hmm. yeah. And uh, there's, I guess, you know, it's been such a gold rush over the past few years with firms all over the world, you know, racing to get a slice of Spanish solar. And if you combine that, I think, with a grid that is both congested and not particularly transparent as well. So what you're going to get is speculation. And, and there was a specific mention of that firm sitting for years on project rights, uh, hoarding really grid space and expecting of, of course to cash in a few years down the line so yeah but the good news actually is that it seems that uh, you know spain is finally acting there is a decree around grid access uh, and our speakers felt you know that this will clarify the rules for everyone uh, covid will actually uh, interestingly help flattening that bubble of overvalued assets mm. and uh, the result is that you're going to root out uh, the speculators um now really and the firms we mean will actually those be in the long run you know are they're here to actually develop rather than speculate and um, i think the parting uh, word of caution as well or the parting thought i thought was really interesting i think it was uh, pablo team from powerties was look the government will try and help we definitely have a more uh, supportive uh, uh, government right now but you as developers you also have to step on the brakes as well and be a bit more measured uh, the targets we have, I mean, Spain has to, God, I think that, I think it has to add 50 gigawatt of new solar in a decade. But we have the whole a whole decade to do this. You don't have to. I think this is the word he's not a rush. Yeah, you know, like <laughs> run a marathon at the sprint yeah. pace as well. So, yeah. yeah. Which I thought was quite it's interesting because that was that was a very similar um, uh, topic in the um, Italian panel. So they they currently have um, just under twenty one gigawatts of solar. Again, they're, they're a market a bit similar to Spain in that respect, where they've had their kind of um, installation rush. They have quite a significant capacity um, already, but they've also had their. I think it's fair to say the Italian market's had their, had its legal issues in the past, which has perhaps mm. led to a bit of consternation <laughs> around um, or a bit of uh, reticence about actually investing there. Um, mm. But as a, as, an, as, a, as a country, they have um, a target of uh, 52 gigawatts of capacity by 2030. So again, that you, you, they're going to have to deploy something to the tune of 30 gigawatts of solar in the next, in the next 10 years. So like Spain, it's very much, they have that target. They have some way to go. Um, and there is no shortage of 
um, active participants in that market. They have um, regular auctions um, in Italy. And I know, well, um, listening to the um, Trade Association, um, Italia Seller, who spoke this week, they have um, asked for the postponement of some auction deadlines um, just to give um, certain employers and operators a bit more time to um, get things right and, and get their ducks in a row whilst COVID is, is underway. Um, and that's the those are the auctions under the fur one scheme. But again, that haven't there hasn't been much confirmation yet. But I, I personally, I think there'd be a bit of surprise if if there weren't um, if there weren't some movement there soon. Um, the thing the thing that's really interesting about the Italian market for me, um, there, there's this um, obviously it's a market of pretty significant potential in terms of um, irradiance and and generation. But the capture prices in in the in the Italian market do not make for good reading at the moment. I think the Italian market's been particularly hard hit by um, COVID with some of the strictest lockdown measures um, in Europe and, and if not the world. So um, the, some of the figures that were banded around in, in that panel, um, even the, the kind of middle estimate, so the conservative estimate, they're expecting a 7% um, decline in power demand this year, followed by a 5% rebound um, in 2021. Um, the worst case scenario takes that down to a 12% drop this year followed by a 9% rebound so even yeah. even by their their kind of middle estimate um it, it doesn't make for good reading in in the in the kind of short term um and these these dips in demand are, are worse than both the 2009 and 2014 uh, financial crises in Italy so this this is the most significant shock to the Italian power sector um, in decades it's fair to say um but there's there's a lot to be Buoyant about. Um, I know there was a couple of uh, um, some of the other uh, participants on that panel were talking around a, perhaps a different. You almost flip the financing model on its on it, on its head. So what this might lead to is, is a few more developers looking to build off balance sheet. So they'll go one hundred percent equity um, rather than any kind of looking at any kind of project finance. You, you build um, knowing full well that you can. Uh, um, have to swallow some of that some of that risk um but in that short term you can sort of make make the money that you need to and then look to um refinance the project at a later date by signing a ppa that makes it a bit more um financeable so you almost flip that kind of reverse of the um of the project economics which is quite interesting so there is that kind of um the, the kind of short-term challenges around that could potentially jeopardize the market but there is definitely mid to long-term potential in, in Italy which people are more than happy to kind of embrace which is which is really interesting um Molly I know that you were um quite ever present on the on the the, the two UK panels that we held on Wednesday afternoon what, what what were some of the key takeaways from that I think there was just a lot of optimism um Chris was highlighting that in the UK we now have multiple routes to market which is um, which is significant just because the UK sector has had such a sort of turbulent growth period, but now there's corporate PPAs and there's merchant risk and there's the return of the CFD auctions, um, which was announced earlier this year, um, which has been broadly welcomed by the entire industry because they've been pushing it for it um, since since 2016, effectively. Um, but there's still quite a lot of... Uh, there's still a lack of certainty as to how that will actually play out um, 
we're waiting on further details and that's going to be one of the biggest things driving the solar market this year probably um over the last couple of months since lockdown came in solar has actually had a really strong period we've seen a number of different records broken um throughout april and may 10% of all the power in the uk came from solar which is hugely significant um but there's still a long way to go um Similarly, we need to add 54 gigawatts of, we need to have 54 gigawatts of solar capacity by 2035 if the UK is to hit its net zero target, um, which means adding about two and a half gigawatts annually going forwards. So it's just kind of how we can get to that point at this stage. Um, and Chris was saying that particularly looking to the future home standards um, as sort of a litmus test this year as to just how on it the government is. Um, they have a lot of positive rhetoric around building more solar and really supporting it as a technology. But whether or not um, low carbon and carbon saving technologies like solar will be a necessary requirement for all new build housing going forwards is under consultation at the moment. And that will that will be a bigger indicator of just how much support the solar sector has. I know I, I I find the UK market particularly fascinating. Haven't worked pretty extensively on it for a, a few years now. Um, there there is this pretty significant discrepancy between um, what is deemed to be the market potential or the market appetite. So there's there really is significant appetite for the UK market, mm. um, and the UK government is always said that it wants a thriving solar sector but the rhetoric hasn't really matched hasn't really matched with policy i think it's fair to say um and the reintroduction of solar into this into the contracts with different scheme um earlier this year was it's, it's something which has been a long time coming um so there's been locked out of um capacity auctions in the uk since 2015 um for some bizarre reason um and I thought listening to Chris um, and what what they're or they're particularly asking for is is really quite interesting because you have I know that in other markets so Spain um, Italy um, to name just a few there are regular auctions there whereas in in the UK the capacity auctions are are every two years mm-hmm. the, the the design of that is basically to reflect the fact that historically the the, the contracts with different schemes has pretty much been associated with offshore wind which obviously has quite significant lead times over solar whereas as chris rightly pointed out you could build a large-scale solar farm pretty much anywhere in in around six months so them or the soda trade association in the uk having now pushed for um this reintroduction of, of cfds and, and and to really get there and now looking to extend that and make or at least push for more regular auctions in the uk um, could mean that if if that wishes a deal to, and if, and if the government listen, and I know that there's a, a um, the government's uh, energy white paper is well, it's about six months overdue now, um, but through various political incidents and, and obviously COVID as well, having to set that, um, it's it's currently being rewritten. But it will be interesting to see whether that happens because if if it does, then that certainly could. Um, like something of a fire under under the UK solar market, and I think previous subsidy schemes have shown that um, if the UK is given a chance, um, deploying 
2.5 to 3 gigabytes a year really isn't beyond it. So it'd be interesting to see what happens there. Um, moving away from Iberia, Italy and the UK, were there any other particular markets that, that grabbed our attention this week? Yeah, I was really excited to have um, a session on the Irish market because obviously that's been a, um, a kind of a, a support scheme that's been a long time coming. Sure. Definitely has. Um, I know. I know. Um, it's the renewable electricity support scheme, isn't it? Yeah. So we had ICA presenting, I think it was on Monday now. Um, all the days have kind of merged into one now. Um, but, um, you know, they were sort of um, kind of giving an update on sort of how it would work and um, what it kind of means to the industry. Um, and they were saying they're predicting that solar can deploy between 3.75 and 6 gigawatts um, between now and 2030. So again, you know, it's, it's another market which, um, you know, if you talk to investors, um, you know, broadly speaking, they're quite supportive of the Irish market. It's easy to do business, you know, the same language, good jurisprudence. So it's just about getting that support scheme over the line, really, I think, for people. Yeah, it's, it's another market. Um, I know our, um, our our own market research team mm-hmm. keep a close eye and there's, there really, there's a significant pipeline of projects over there, um, which... Again, Ireland you wouldn't ordinarily associate with higher radiance or, or a sunny climate, but um, particularly in the south of the country, it really does work. And we've seen um, evidence of that. So, yeah, another really interesting market to keep on, on tabs in Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that is pretty much everything that we've we've had to wrap up, unless, unless anybody feels uh, a burning desire to, to really press ahead with anything else. But just one quick comment I want to make on, on kind of emerging markets. So the two that sure. came up more than more than more often than not were Poland and Ukraine. Um, so I think you know that would they will be two markets to watch for the future for people. Yeah, that's that's definitely it, it's something which has come up um, with uh, some of our coverage on PV Tech. We, mm. We've routinely heard um, good things around Poland and, and Ukraine, and, and indeed mostly recently in Europe as well. Um, mm. If you're going to tag on markets like Turkey into that the Turkey they're like the perennial um almost market um but yeah. there, there could be some activity there um in, in, the, in the coming months and years um but yeah yeah certainly a, a, another topic which I'm sure we'll come on to in future future summits yes definitely <laughs> <laughs> excellent um right so I think um it's, it's perhaps best to best to leave the discussion there we've gone over um, a huge amount of material that, that's been discussed this week. Mm. Um, all that's left for me to do is to thank our sponsors for the large-scale solar digital summit this week, including DuPont, Huawei, Jinko Solar, and Next Tracker. Um, just to remind everyone, really, that um, if you haven't um, watched any of the sessions or if you've missed anything, or indeed if you just want to go over them again, all of the sessions um, throughout the summit are available um, to watch on demand, and they will be kept on on the site for for one month. So there really is no excuse not to not to uh, not to log in and, and view some of those. They'll also be covered elsewhere as well for um, for ease of access. And um, the large scale summits will um, will continue throughout. We have a, a huge array of digital summits to come. Uh, perhaps next on our next on our list is the solar and storage finance mm-hmm. uh, digital summit, which mm-hmm. takes place um, from the first of June. Um, followed by our Entech um, Digital Summit, which is um, which is in mid June, and uh, rounding off the first round of our digital summits is uh, is one on electric vehicles, which which really isn't to be missed. Um, but other than that, thank you very much for listening. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.